This is the very words of our God. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brenton, for reading the Word of God to us this morning. Good morning again, church. It's a privilege to stand before you this morning and open the Word of God together and look prayerfully at what He would like to deliver to us today. I love that piece of Scripture that Brenton just shared with us, and I chose that uh, as our Scripture reading. It doesn't have anything directly to do with the text we're looking at today, but it does with the concept. And, uh, and that, that statement from this guy, Simeon, can you imagine this guy who God had promised him, you will not die until you actually see the consolation of Israel or the Christ, the Messiah, and that he saw him. And that proclamation, this is the light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. And that's what we're looking at today. That's what we're studying 
uh, as we open the Word of God today. We're going to be in the book of John in chapter 1. Uh, this entire series, as uh, Pastor Greg just described it, is, uh, is from those first few verses of chapter 1 of the book of John. And uh, so uh, it's, it's kind of fun to, to, to be a part of this with, uh, with our four pastor elders to, to bring these four messages, this series, and work together on it. And I've, I've enjoyed uh, my part in it so far. And uh, last week I was away. Uh, two weeks ago, Jessica and I were, were just starting work on a project we've been working on with our company for three years in the island nation of Malta. It's a, it was a global gathering, a global congress for life. 155 nations represented all people who are champions for life. And all that means is people who are followers of Christ, who are determined to, to make an impact concerning the sanctity of human life in all the different forms that that topic takes on. And uh, it was a privilege to, uh, to organize and, and to lead that conference or Congress and then to be a part of it, witnessing what was happening with all of these uh, people from different countries. After we finished that, we went to uh, another place for a few days while we were in Europe to just kind of uh, rest and rest up and relax and have a little vacation before coming home. So last Sunday morning, uh, I was in Budapest, Hungary, six hours ahead of where you are here. So when you were in church, I think we were out at a Christmas market eating uh, food and stuff. Uh, and so that night when we got back to the hotel and I was laying in bed, I wanted to listen to Pastor Brenton's message from last week uh, because we're doing this series and I thought it, it might be good for me to know what he's saying. Uh, and so I put in my, uh, my earbuds as I was laying in bed, turned out the light, brought up the message on Facebook, and uh, I started listening to Brenton, and I fell right to sleep. So that was a great message. <laughs> I think it was about an hour and a half later I woke up, and there was still a preacher preaching in my ear. It wasn't Brenton. He didn't carry on that long. And, uh, and I was listening to it, and I didn't recognize the voice. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, Facebook is just playing this message, just automatically went on to something else and was playing just random messages. And I'm trying to figure out who is this. I didn't recognize the voice, but I was listening to the teaching, and it was so rich and strong. After about 10 minutes of laying there awake, I thought, I need to look at my phone and see who this is teaching. And I grabbed my phone and looked. It was Scott Walker teaching the Wednesday night Bible study. And I was so stricken with how blessed we are to have the quality of the teaching of the Word of God here at Vero Bible Fellowship that we have. And thank you, Brenton and Scott, for uh, faithfully teaching the Word. By the way, I should say, that afternoon I, I sat down and listened intently to Brenton's message and, uh, and was just absolutely blessed by the, the, the work that Brenton did, the way God spoke through him, and uh, the diligence that was there. We're, uh, we're blessed by, by those gifts. This morning we're, uh, we're going to look at a couple of verses in John chapter 1, and I'd like to, uh, to, to kind of get a running start at it and go back to what Brenton covered last week, not in his sermon, but just the, the text, uh, because I think it can be, you know, there's a good thing about going verse by verse through a portion of Scripture, but there's a dangerous side of it too if you get too minute. If, if you take just each verse separately, they're designed to actually go together. And so it's good to kind of see the context as you, you know, dive into what's actually being said. So take your Bibles, open to John chapter 1, and uh, let's read the first, let's see, I think nine verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. As we look this morning at the second part of this four-part series on the incarnation of Christ with the overall title of When the Invisible Became Visible, and I thought Brenton did a wonderful job last week of explaining and going to the book of Colossians and the the, the description of Christ and how Christ allowed us to see God, the invisible became visible. And today as we look at that, uh, following up what what we learned last week about how in him there was life, the life was the light of men, the darkness could not comprehend the light or overcome the light. And it's in this concept that we find our topic today, and that is that Jesus Christ is the light. And what does that mean? How does that play out? What significance do we get from that? We see it said clearly in verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So the incarnation of Christ, as we look at the purpose of the incarnation, why did Christ come in today's message? The answer is actually given to us right there. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was coming into the world to enlighten. Okay, but what, what does that mean? And so I want to dive into that a little bit today and take a look at it. Shortly after this uh, portion of Scripture right here, it gets into talking a little bit about John the Baptist. And it, in fact, it's talking about John the Baptist right here, and that he was one who came as bearing witness to the light, talking about the light, taking the attention of the people and focusing it where it should be on the light of Christ. As we see here, there's a declaration that the true light gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. And the Bible uses this theme of light often. Why do you suppose that is? I think maybe it's because it's something that we understand. That like Light is not hard to figure out. The importance of light, the necessity of light. We, we were, uh, if, if you're in a, a room having dinner in a nice restaurant, the lights are probably going to be dim. These people all the time are getting out their phones nowadays and turning on the flashlight to read the menu. You see this glaring light all over the restaurant as they ruin the environment of the restaurant that was intended by the people who designed it because they need to see what's going on. We need light. Light's important. We understand light. We understand the benefit the necessity of light. Uh, we were in Budapest uh, last week, and uh, Jessica and I travel constantly pretty much with our, our work, and so stay in a lot of different hotels. And there's, you know, good and bad in that, but one of the difficult things is, you know, you wake up in the night to go to the bathroom, and uh, it's anyone's guess where that might be, you know, which side of the bed and how many. I, I, I'm pretty much uh, determined to make sure before I go to bed at night that there's no furniture that's going to break my toes between my bed and the bathroom door. Okay, so we were in Budapest in this hotel, nice blackout curtains, and uh, the room was very, very dark. And, uh, and there was another uh, little living room area with another bathroom, and I was going to go out there to use a bathroom in the middle of the night and ran straight into the wall. <laughs> 
Light is important. We understand the, the, the necessity of illumination. And that's why the Scripture uses the concept of light so often in this situation to illumine what we need to know in order to please God. So let's look at what Christ has shown us through his light. I want to look at three different things. And we could probably make a list of a hundred things that we learn through the light of Christ. But three important things uh, that I want to focus on today. One is Christ's light and salvation. The second is Christ's light and leading us as his followers to worship. And the third is Christ's light as it leads us in spiritual maturity. And uh, as we look at those three things, I want to look at three different portions of Scripture. Don't, don't worry, I'm going to try not to preach an entire sermon on every one of them, uh, although it probably deserves that, but you don't deserve having to sit through that this morning. So uh, I'll, I'll use some restraint. First, I want to look uh, just a couple of pages forward in the book of John, in John chapter 4, about how the light of Christ brings salvation. In this fourth chapter of the book of John, we have the familiar story of the Samaritan woman. Often we call her the woman at the well. And you remember that story, right? And so here's what was happening. We're not going to dive too deep in the story, but I want to take a look at it, refresh your memories of what is happening here, and then then make some application to, to this in terms of the light of Christ bringing salvation. Jesus and his disciples were traveling and, uh, and to go from where they were to where they were headed, they, the shortest route was to go through Samaria. So they were going through Samaria, which, as I remind you, it was a portion of the country that they did not like to go through. They didn't like the people there. Uh, they, they were different. They were uh, not, not exactly the same as the Hebrew people. It sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? I want to be political at all this morning, but the situation still is alive in Israel, not with Samarians but with other people who are living in that country, who are uh, citizens of the country, and yet are set aside, and you know, there, there's a, not just a physical separation, but uh, all their kinds of separation between them as well. I'll risk just saying this, just like the Palestinian people probably are, are not that fond of Israel as a whole. The same thing was true about Samaria. Is the people of Israel didn't like Samarians. Samarians didn't like not being liked, and so they didn't like the people of Israel. So there's this, this tension between them that made it most comfortable for them just to stay separate. But for matters of convenience, Jesus and disciples went through Samaria, and they were in this town, and uh, it was midday, and they were hungry, so the disciples went into town to find some food, and Jesus waited for them by the well outside of town, and that's where we pick up this scene starting in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samarians, Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons 
and his livestock. I, I think if we can just put ourselves in the mind of the, the Samaritan woman at this point, she was probably a little suspicious. Everything that was happening here was unusual and was not supposed to happen. Here was this, this obvious leader, person uh, who is a Jew, who's sitting there at the well, a stranger from somewhere else who wouldn't normally be there, and she comes in the middle of the day, probably because of what's known about her reputation, maybe not the, the time when everyone else is going to be at the well, so probably trying to avoid people. That's a little bit of speculation, but for, with basis. She comes to the well, and this stranger asks her to give him a drink, which would be very inappropriate because a Jewish person like this guy sitting there would not accept a drink handed to him by a Samaritan woman. So she's suspicious. Something's unusual. Something's going on here. What's this guy up to? Is this some kind of a trick? What's about to happen to me? Am I going to get in trouble somehow for talking to this guy and giving him some water, fulfilling that simple request? So she's, I can just kind of see the wheels of her mind churning as she's trying to figure out what is the right thing for me to do in this situation. So I think she decides to make some kind of a weird argument about Jacob. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So she's trying to figure out what's going on here, and he says this strange thing, she must have really been wondering, okay, what's this all about? And her response was probably the perfect response. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. That sounds great. I want some of that water. Give it to me. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said to me is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Interesting story, isn't it? As is every story, if you study it, when somebody is interacting with the light, interacting with the light of Christ. Here's a person, had no idea who she was talking to, had no idea what they were talking about, but she encountered the light, and she heard Jesus Christ offer her something that she knew that she needed, and she agreed. Give me that water. I need what you're offering to me. At that moment, she had no idea that Jesus knew all about her life and her problems and her sin and her situation and her reputation. All she knew is this guy offered her something good, and she wanted that. But there's more to it than that. And there always is. You know, when, when somebody who is in their right mind, thinking properly about life and eternity, hears the message that there is a God who loves you, and he offers you salvation. He offers you relationship with him. Who wouldn't want that? relationship with the Almighty. Even if you're not sure who the Almighty is, if you think there might be lots of different gods, 
someone comes to you and says, I have good news for you. You can have a good, right relationship with this deity who will love you and be a part of your life, and you'll have all kinds of benefit from having this relationship with him. Who in their right mind would not say, I'll take that deal. I think that's great. And that's kind of what she heard when Jesus said, I can offer you living water and you'll never be thirsty again. And I think she got that he wasn't just talking about wet stuff that would quench her thirst, but something that would answer the needs of her life. Sir, give me that water. But the gospel is more than that, isn't it? There are really two parts of the gospel. One part of the gospel is that message of good news, and the other part of the gospel is the bad news. And you kind of have to get the bad news before you can really apply the good news. And what is the bad news? The bad news is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's nothing that we can possibly do to correct that. There's no amount of good works or effort or diligence, discipline, spiritual discipline, reading the Bible, praying, going as a missionary to a difficult part. None of that is going to solve our problem. There's only one way to solve the problem, and that is to admit the problem before God. Admit, God, I'm a sinner. I have a problem called sinfulness, and that sinfulness separates every person from a holy, almighty God. And if you don't understand that part of it, then you can't have the other part of it. She wanted that good part. Sir, give me that water. And Jesus was like, hold on, not so fast. Go get your husband. Bring him here. Oh, well, I don't have a husband. I'm aware of that. The truth is you've had seven husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. Letting her know, listen, lady, I know about your need. I know about your life. I know about your problem. But you can't have the living water without dealing with this. And what does dealing with this mean? Jesus didn't say, go and fix all these problems. He said, ask me for water. But when we come to Christ for that relationship, that benefit that we get from being one with the Almighty, being seen as his children, his beloved, it requires repentance. It requires us understanding there is law. The Old Testament law was there for a reason, and the reason was to point out our inability to please God. Even if you do all of these things and keep all of these laws and do all of these sacrifices on the right days at the right time in the right way, like Mary and Joseph when they brought Jesus to the temple, as we heard in the scripture that Brenton read a few moments ago, it's required they bring a sheep and a dove, or if you don't have enough money, you could bring two doves. But there is a requirement. You have to fulfill this requirement in order to get the benefit. The law is there for a reason. To make sure that we know that we cannot possibly comply. And so in the old system of religion, in the Old Testament, it required the sacrifice of those animals because without the shedding of blood, sin is not forgiven. And in the new covenant, Jesus Christ came the Son of God, without sin, without blemish, to be sacrificed for my sin. And it's only when I recognize my inability to keep the law in that one side of the gospel, my shortcoming, my fault, my inability to comply and to please God, 
that I can receive the gift of the living water. This lady who just went out from her house to get some water for the day encountered the light. And something happened in her. We don't see a lot of detail about what she was thinking after that or what God was doing in her heart, but we see the results of it. And often we can see from the results, from the testimony, from the actions of somebody, what happened in their heart. And this is what happened with her. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. An entire village encountered the light of Christ. And through the light of Christ received salvation. One of the things that we receive, from the benefits we receive from the light of Christ is salvation. But salvation comes through repentance as well as through belief. The recognition of the Messiah was dramatic and it affected that entire village. This is probably a, a good point to, to mention today, that if, if you are here today and you've never received salvation, confessing to God that you are a sinful person who cannot achieve anything worthy of entrance into heaven and of pleasing God and atoning for your own sin. And if you believe today that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross to take that payment so that you could freely receive the living water that he received about, that he talked about here, then now is a great time to do that. Now, traditionally, you wait till the end of the service, and some churches have an altar call where they invite people to come up and pray. I think that's all great. We don't normally do that here, although we always have people at the front to pray with you after the service. But you don't have to wait. If this is happening to you right now and you know that there's, this is the time to go to God and say, God, I'm a sinner I believe in Jesus Christ's death on the cross for my sin. I want to be right with you and receive that living water. Make me your child today. You can do that right now without talking to anyone. God hears you. Take care of that business and move forward as a new creature whose life has been changed by your encounter with the light. The light of God brings salvation. I want to move on and talk about how the light of Christ also prompts his people to worship. I'd like to uh, ask you to turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians in chapter 1. This, this one is not a, a story like the story, the account of the Samaritan woman at the well. This, this is more uh, something that we see the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus which is a testimony of how God has changed him and how the light of Christ has prompted him to worship. Worship is something that's too often misunderstood in the, in the modern church. We talk about uh, having our worship time. And we, we had our time when our musicians led us, in, led us in worship. And we worship that way. Music is used throughout Scripture as worship. But worship, music in itself is not worship. And worship is not especially music. So people come to church and sing songs or put some worship music on their uh, listening device at home. 
and think they have worshipped. And maybe they have or maybe they just listened to some music. Worship is deeper than that. It's more than that. Worship is our reaction to the greatness and the holiness of God, our reaction to who he is, understanding things about God that cause us to to speak out to him, whether that's outwardly or inwardly in prayer, acknowledging his greatness and his goodness and what he has done that exalts God and glorifies him, and that is worship. And it can be done in music, and I'm so thankful as a musician that God gave us that. I love music. It's a great way to worship. Uh, my wife is tone deaf. She's not really into music. Yeah, I'm colorblind. I don't see colors right. She's kind of colorblind of the ears. So music doesn't move her the way it does me. And God made that's not a problem. God made her that way. She still worships God in ways that he inspires her to do. I just wanted to say that so we don't think that if we talk about the, the light of Christ prompts his people to worship, it doesn't especially mean to sing, although it might. I think it's way deeper than that. And even if your favorite way to worship God is through music, get used to worshiping God in many other ways too that have nothing to do with music that are just an automatic pouring out of something in your spirit. And that's what we see happening in Ephesians chapter 1 with this portion of scripture uh, written in a letter from the apostle Paul to the church of Ephesus. So he's writing to this church, and he was taught, in fact, let me just read, starting in uh, in verse 13. If if you don't have your Bible open to read this, just listen carefully. I'm going to read it a little bit slow. Try and really grasp what he's saying here. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So just a little summary of that. He's writing to this church, and he's talking to people who have put their faith in Christ, have become children of God, are followers of Jesus Christ, have done that thing that we just talked about as we talked about the light of Christ bringing salvation. They are saved. So he's saying in him who have done this, for this reason, because you as a church, the people I'm writing to, have taken this step and are children of God, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, that's something that we've heard a little something about already in in this church service. At 9.30, there's a group out there gathered to pray. Pastor Greg was talking to that group and, and emphasizing the importance as we come together, as people walk through the door, let's love on them. Paul mentions that here. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he goes on to explain to them what he prays for them. I I had a a text this morning from a good friend who knew I was speaking this morning, and he texted me this most beautiful prayer. I I wish I had time to just read it to you today, but it it, it blessed me. It's not something he made up. It's from the Book of Common Prayer, a prayer that was written uh, for preachers who are getting ready to go into the pulpit and preach the Word of God. encouraged me to read on my phone in this text message what Mike was praying for me today. There's benefit to not just knowing that somebody's praying for you, but knowing what they're praying for you. And that in itself can stretch you and move you and encourage you. My friend Todd is sitting back here. Todd and and Kelly and their daughter Malone from Southern California. 
Uh, they're still good people. Don't judge them for that. There, there, there are a few, there's a remnant left in California who serve God and, uh, and have common sense. And they're just wonderful friends. We're glad to have them here. I don't know how many, t- Todd, Todd gets up early in the morning and uh, studies the word of God and prays for his family and his friends. I don't know how many times I've received a text from Todd, like in the morning before I'm getting up, saying what he's praying for me today. Paul is doing that. He's saying, he's writing in this letter, I pray for you, I'm encouraged by you and your faith and your love for the saints, and as I pray for you, here's what I'm praying. Okay, now it's time for me to get to the point. Starting in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, let's, let's pause there, that you may have the eyes of your heart enlightened. What's our topic this morning? The light of Christ, interacting with the light of Christ. Paul is saying, I'm praying that these are believers, followers of Christ, not not that they would have the eyes of their heart enlightened so that they would come to salvation. That's an event that already happened for them. That the eyes of their hearts would be opened or enlightened. The light would be shining to illumine something for them to understand they did not previously understand. That the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may know, and here's what he is praying that they would know. What are the, sorry, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the first thing, that you would know the hope to which he's called you. The second thing, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? These are two things that we know of, right, by reading in the scripture. We know of the hope to which he's called us, but do we really know it? Do we really comprehend it? Oh, no, you can be sure that we don't. And you know what? We're not going to, at least not on this side of heaven. And we see, as Paul described, through a glass darkly. But we will see face to face. We will know him even as we are known, but not not here on this earth. No matter how much teaching we sit under or how much we read the Bible, there are things that we know about. We know they exist. We know they're there. We know they're true. Do we know them? No, what Paul's praying, hey guys, my prayer for you is that the eyes of your heart would be opened so that you would see a little bit more, that you would know more about the hope to which he's called you, more than you know already, that you would know a little bit more about the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints. Because I think Paul understood that he didn't know. Like there's more to the riches of the inheritance that we have in the saints in heaven than we can comprehend the side of heaven. And even when we're there, based on what we see in Scripture, our reaction to what we see and experience in heaven will be continual, constant amazement that causes us to spontaneously break out in worship, even if it's the same thing that we saw yesterday in heaven and we know we'll see tomorrow in heaven and again and again throughout eternity. It's so great, so profound, the riches are so deep that will constantly break into worship when we recognize him all over again. And Paul's prayer is that you just get a little bit of that. That you would learn a little bit more of it. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That you would know a little bit more of the actual power that God has that is used, focused towards, intended towards the benefit of you who believe. Think about that for a minute. 
Like, what would that really be like? What's that all about? What is that power? Do we comprehend what that power is? No. I pray the eyes of your heart may be opened and lightened so that you would know a little bit more about this power. And then Paul starts to get excited. And this is one of the things I love about this scripture because Paul starts to break into worship. As he's thinking, he's, he's praying that these people would understand these truths. He starts thinking about them more. And then he breaks into like a worship service here that has nothing to do with his prayer. It's just his realization all over again how great this is that he's talking about because he's seeing something that was illumined by the light of Christ. He's talking about that power. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand. He's getting into a big run-on sentence here. Paul does this. If you study Paul's writing, when he gets excited about something, he'll throw in some commas and you know a little bit of punctuation to just keep the thing going because he's not going to stop and put a period on this thing for a while yet. But get what he's saying, that, that you'll understand the power that God has focused towards you who believe that, that same, this, listen, the same power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Let that sink in for a minute. Like, what power did God exert when that stone was rolled away and Christ came out, raised from the dead, conquering sin and death forever? Like, what, all the power that God has, what percentage of that, how far up did that power meter line go to the maximum? Obviously, there is no such thing with God. And Paul's making the point, I, I want you to, to get this, that the power that's at work in you today is the exact same level of power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, and then the run on sin, because it wasn't just raising Christ from the dead, but he raised Christ from the dead and then seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who fills in all. That's a lot. I'm not going to try and teach all of that, but you get the point, right? Even as Paul was praying for the church at Ephesus, the light of Christ was working in him in such a way that he spontaneously just had to break into this exclamation of worship talking about the incredible power of Christ. And the light of Christ should affect us that way as well. If we see the truth of the light of Christ through the enlightening of the eyes of our hearts, we will worship God in truth. We will truly worship. And that's part of why Christ came. I mentioned that uh, Global Congress for Life in, in Malta, where we were a couple of weeks ago. People from 155 countries. Um, and, and one of the things they did uh, is this group gathered together as we had times of musical worship. And as the worship team who was leading it uh, did their work, they incorporated people from a variety of different countries. Some of them sang in their own languages, you know, songs that everybody knew. And some of them uh, sang in English. And it was kind of fun to see that. You can imagine, right? Like this international worship band, people from all over. This congregation of people from all over worshiping their own customs and languages, and some of them 
dressed in odd clothes. There was this one uh, lady, an Asian lady, who uh, we were sitting in the back. You know, we were in charge of producing this event and running everything, keeping it on time and all that. So Jessica and I were sitting in the back, and this Asian lady is up there singing with the worship team one morning. And she just sang so incredibly loud. I, I mean, they may have had her mic turned off, and, and she was still the loudest thing in the worship band. And she didn't sing that good. You know, and, and I kind of chuckled. I'm like, oh, what's with this lady? You know, like, I don't know if she just thinks she's really, really good, and she has to have everybody know it, uh, and she's really not. Because, you know, there are people like that that you run into from time to time. It, you know, it didn't bother me, but it was, it was kind, of a, kind of interesting and maybe a little bit humorous. In, uh, I think, four or five different sessions, she was up there singing with such expression and so loudly. And it wasn't until after the, uh, the end of the thing, and we were in a meeting with, with like an evaluation meeting with some of the people who were running it, uh, somebody mentioned her. And I don't know what her name is because uh, many people there from countries that, were, uh, that would be dangerous for them to be known were there with false names. Some of them saying they're from a country they're not really from so they wouldn't be traced. She was Pam. I, I don't think there are a lot of uh, Asians named Pam, so I don't think that was her, her real name, but she was Pam. And here's, man, I'm not going to be able to sit. Every time I get up here, I cry, don't I? But, uh, you know, that's my problem and yours too. But here, you, you can't blame me on this one, because here's what, here's what we learned about Pam. She's from China. Jess should come up here and tell this, because she could, she could talk. She's from China. Worships in a like a house church. Man, I'm sorry. I I hate this. I would love to just talk. Um, she was saying that um, this was the man. This was the first time, I'm just going to yell it out. This was the first time that she was able to sing loud. I was obviously moved by that. But especially because I was sitting back there snickering. You know, what's with this lady? It's weird. She had seen the light of Christ. She had to keep it bottled up. If she sang loud, their church would be discovered. And for the first time, she could just get up there and just let it go. And friends, that's, that's how it's supposed to be. Now, it might not be your thing to stand up on the stage and just let it wail to the glory of God. Figure out what your thing is. Like, how, how is it that God has equipped you to just unashamedly let it go and worship him? Paul's thing was big, long run-on sentences that his English teacher would not like at all.
The light of Christ prompts his people to worship him. Okay, we're going to pick up the pace here. I have one more I want to talk about, and that is the light of Christ that draws his followers to maturity in him. And for this, I want to go to the book of First Peter. Sorry, Second Peter. The book of Second Peter in chapter 1. This is another one that really would be great to spend a significant amount of time on, and I would encourage you to do that in your, in your own time this week, to take this portion of Scripture and dig into it, because we're going to just touch on it very, very briefly right now. Peter is, uh, is talking as he's writing this letter, talking about the God's work in the lives of his followers. Starting in chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's a lot right there. One of my favorite little things in Scripture, favorite nuggets, is right there that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Another way to say that, he's, he's given you, as his follower, everything that you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. Wow. But then he goes on to give us something very practical, and this is what I want to focus on as we look at the light of Christ drawing his people to maturity in him. Picking it up with verse 5, for this very reason, what was the reason? The very reason of the fact that Christ has brought you to salvation and given you everything you need to succeed in your walk with him through your knowledge of Christ. For this reason, make every effort to grow. To mature. Make every effort. Like put some work into it. Make every effort to grow and mature. But he's more specific than that. And he gives us a list. And this is what I would encourage you to go back and spend some time with and study because it's such a, a cool and practical list. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So you have some faith? Work on adding virtue to your faith. And virtue with knowledge. So you get a little better in your virtue. Add some knowledge to it, not just general knowledge, but knowledge of God. And knowledge with self-control. And then self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. So he's got this list. You work on this, and then add this to it, and then work on adding this to it. And, uh, and you, you, you get that godliness, and you're probably going to be a little uppity and hard to be around because you're so godly. And so, you know, let's add some brotherly love on top of that to take that down a notch. And, uh, and just these things, as you're growing and developing, focus on these things. And then he gives us something really, really interesting here. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if you have these things in increasing measure, they're growing, they're happening more and more, because through discipline and focus, you're working on these, asking God to build these and working on these things in your life. You have these in increasing measure. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I don't want to be ineffective and unfruitful in my work for the Lord, do you? 
Well, he's saying if you would just do this, it's sort of a recipe almost. You do this, put some discipline into this, into your spiritual growth and maturity, that will keep you from being ineffective. And then he gives the other side of it too. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. If you, if you don't care enough to, to be working on this and asking God to do this work in you, you're so nearsighted you're blind. And then as if that's not bad enough, he's, he adds to it having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you, if you don't care enough to do this, to be working and asking, and I think it's both things, asking God to work in you to bring maturity and putting a little diligence and focus on that yourself as well. If you do these things, it will keep you from being ineffective. If you don't do them, you're nearsighted and blind, and you'll actually act like you've forgotten that you were ever forgiven to begin with totally lost the value of your salvation. doesn't say you lost your salvation, but you totally lost the value of your salvation, the meaning of it. Well, what a terrible, terrible thing. And so what, what prompts all of this? He says in his introductory comments, because God has granted you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, through the light, through the light being illumining who God is, the knowledge of God, through the light, God is bringing you to spiritual maturity. And we can be thankful for that. Christ came to give light that guides us in our spiritual growth and maturity. And uh, as, as we close this morning, I just have a, a couple of comments I'd like to ask you to, to reflect on. So why did God take on flesh? That portion that we started with in John chapter 1 said that it was to, to bring the light. Simeon's testimony, the old prophet that saw Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple in the passage that Brenton read for us this morning, said he'll be a light to the nations. So why did God take on flesh? To bring the light, to bring salvation. God took on flesh so that we could be saved. God took on flesh so that we could know better how to worship him, and God took on flesh so that we could grow in spiritual maturity. But there's something simpler than that that I want to really leave you with this morning, because I think, I think, I believe This is the key, and it's just this simple. God took on flesh. The incarnation happened to bring glory to God. And that is always God's motive, to bring glory to himself. If that was my motive, to bring glory to myself, that would be wrong. That would be bad. But I'm not God. That would be wrong because when I'm bringing glory to myself, I'm taking that away from someone else that deserves it, most from God. There is none other besides God, and God is allowed to glorify himself. All of Scripture from the start of the book of Genesis, the things that happened in the past, to the things that have yet to happen that we read about in the book of Revelation, all of that puts the focus on Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, because God's plan was to create the world, to create man, to put man in the garden, to leave it open for Satan to come in and ruin the whole thing, God was not shocked or surprised. This was all part of God's plan because through that, God would bring an answer to that sin, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And through that, God would be glorified. It's all about God's glory. And we mix that up. Sometimes we want to talk about our salvation and our story. We want to talk about uh, how we worship. We want to talk about our spiritual maturity. You know why any of that happens? Because God decided it should happen. God is moving. God is glorified by his work in my life. And my testimony of salvation 
It's not my testimony of salvation. It's God's story of what he did through this guy. We like to put ourselves in the center, but it's not us. It's God. And Jesus Christ put on flesh and came to earth to bring glory to God because there is no greater glorification of the Father than the redemption of people from the trap of sin. And only one could be that redeemer, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the unblemished, perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. And God is glorified through that. So why did Christ come? This is the light, guys. This is it. This is the light. If we are seeing anything, let the light illumine this in our hearts that God did all of this so that he would be glorified through you and through me. Years and years ago, I learned this, the number one question, the first question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith, what is the chief end of man? What's it all about? What's life about? What are we supposed to do? If you boil it down to one thing for me, what's my purpose? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Simple as that. That's why Christ came, to glorify God so that you could be glorified, so that God would be glorified through your salvation so that you could enjoy him forever as his child. Not just God didn't put on flesh to save me, not to improve my lot, not to make me some kind of a spiritual champion, but through whatever he did to this guy, he would be glorified. Why is Amelia going to the Middle East to be a missionary? Out of discipline, responding to God's call in her life, all of that, but to bring glory to God. Whatever God does in her and through her, around her. We talk a lot at Vero Bible Fellowship about joining God and what he's doing, right? We, we have this slogan, pure and simple devotion to Christ. There's a simple way that we do all of that. What, what, what is God doing? If we want to join God in what he's doing, God is glorifying himself, glorifying the Father. Join God in what he's doing, bring glory to the Father. Then how do you do that? Focus on him, enjoy him, Recognize your salvation. Recognize the benefits of it and praise God for that. As we close this morning, if you'd like to come up to the front and pray, we'll have people here who will be ready to pray with you. If this morning God has moved in you and brought you to the point where you are saying to him, God, I'm a sinner and I want to be saved. And if you've done that this morning or you're not sure exactly how to do that, come and let us show you from the word of God how that happens. Let's pray together. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified today. Thank you that the light of Christ has been shining among men and that through the word of God and the things that are recorded and taught, the perfect, holy word of God, Father, we can learn today about how the light of Christ brings salvation, how the light of Christ if we'd comprehend you more thoroughly because of what we see shining, illumined by your light, that we will worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, as these things happen, as we get to know you, we will want to grow and deepen in our faith and our spiritual maturity. Do that work in me, Father. And I pray that that would be the prayer of the people of Vero Bible Fellowship, not just today, but as we go through this Advent season. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, friends. God bless you. You're dismissed.